And we're back with another edition of Official Word Sports Podcast. And I'm Vince, and I'm here with my co-host, Stevie D. And Stevie D, the NFL season has yet to officially begin, but it is on in Pittsburgh. Le'Veon <laughs> Bell has been given his official walking papers. The Steelers said, no, we're, we're not even going to transition tag you. We're not doing anything. Goodbye. Well, I think that was a good move by Pittsburgh. Why Why even go through that whole saga? You have no intentions of signing him anyway. Just let him go and let your football team kind of move on to the second story of the day in Pittsburgh and in, and how to figure out how to navigate through this Antonio Brown saga that they have brewing. Um, because it's clearly um, the Pittsburgh Steelers have taken sides with Ben Roethlisberger over Antonio Brown. And now... Uh, the reports out of Pittsburgh is that Brown met with Rooney down in Florida and they agreed to part ways. Uh, and so the Steelers are going to seek a trade partner for Antonio Brown. So uh, I tell you that the Steelers team, what a difference a year is going to make, right? It's Especially like, for the fan base. It really is. It's, it's unbelievable um, that, you know, you, you're coming into 2018 with high hopes with, with the killer bees. And then all of a sudden it's like, you go through the year, Bell doesn't show up, and then at the towards the end of the year, this big blow up with with Antonio Brown and and Ben Roethlisberger, which looks like all indications that Ben was the instigator um, on that. And now Antonio Brown says, I, "I want out," and it's like, "Holy cow! Your your Hall of Fame to be wide receiver is now going to be out of town, and what could have been a Hall of Fame career in Pittsburgh with Le'Veon Bell is now out." You're talking about two potential Hall of Famers gone that, that's that's a tough pill to swallow if you're a fan of the Steelers there's no doubt about it a, you know from the Le'Veon Bell perspective James Conner played well but he's no Le'Veon Bell and yeah. you you could try to what do they say you put lipstick on a pig you, you could try to paint it whatever way you want to the Steelers missed Le'Veon Bell last year there's no doubt about it their their absence from the playoffs is a direct result of Le'Veon Bell not playing. Now, do you blame him? You know, you could go on either side of the fence on that one. But the Steelers really need to look deep inside and say, what happened? Where did we go wrong? What did we screw up? And you said it just a few moments ago. They put all their chips in on Ben Roethlisberger, which alienated everybody else. Bad move, Pittsburgh bad move no one guy is bigger than the whole team and so now Le'Veon's gone and then Antonio Brown uh like you said he met and they could seek a trade now this is going to be interesting this may be the whole drama of of the new season uh and for as far as any trades and, and what goes on with Antonio Brown because he's still under contract if a trade is made then his salary has to uh, be taken on by the new team. The Steelers are going to get hit against their salary cap. And the Steelers are going to want a, a big return for Antonio Brown. I don't know how that happens. And with all this bad blood that's out there between Roethlisberger and Brown and the Steelers front office, I don't yeah. know what we're going to see. I, I agree. It, it's You only have a handful of teams – that can afford to take on that salary first and foremost. And, and out of those teams, there's only going to be a subset that say, yeah, we, we need a wide receiver where we're willing to take on that big cap hit. 
uh, on taking that player because you know 17 million, whatever that number is, that that is an incredible amount to take on at a position, and you don't even know what kind of other um, uh, needs that team needs to be filled. So to say I'm going to make that trade for AB, take on X X contract, and still have enough money to fill the rest of the holes, that, that's a lot. And then the Steelers then have to find the right trade partner to get some type of value because they're the ones who really lose because not only if they lose AB, they're going to take a salary cap hit. I don't know if that's considered dead money on the trade. I don't know how it all shakes out, but there's, there's dollars with their salary cap that they're still going to take a hit on. And, and then you got to try and get back value back in a draft pick for him. I mean, obviously the Steelers are going to want a number one, but people knowing that the Steelers need to trade Antonio Brown, are they really going to say, oh, yeah, here's a number one for him? Right. Now, he, he signed a four-year, $68 million contract back in 2017. So left on the books is roughly around $35 million. That's <laughs> crazy. Yeah, man. you know, I I just – I was called uh, Chris Johnson. I said uh, from the New York Jets, the owner, uh, the Jets, I said, we, we got to make that deal. There's only 35 million left on the table. We got to make that deal. Uh, let's offer a third rounder. Let's see what kind of see what the feels the Steelers are thinking. Maybe we can get him for a third rounder. Let's call it a day. AB, you coming to New York, baby? <laughs> third rounder. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you start with a third rounder. You never know. Now, look, just follow me here. This is the type of receiver that you think you're getting for a third rounder, a guy that. For the last three years, we'll just use the last three years, 104 receptions for almost 1,300 yards, 101 receptions for 1,500 yards, and 106 receptions for 1,300 yards. Okay. You so, think you're getting that for a third rounder? Yeah. Uh, or am I going to get the guy that's going to sit out in the last game of the year to get into the playoffs? What guy am I getting? So okay. he let his whole teammates down over a squabble with Ben Roethlisberger. Low blow there to Mr. Antonio Brown. Well, I'm just trying to level the playing field a little bit, right? Because there's <laughs> incredible numbers. I'm trying to get him for a third-round pick here, and you're trying to <laughs> screw me on that one. All right? So I got to come with something. I mean, I got nothing but love for A.B. to come over to the New York Jets. But, I, again, A.B., we can't give a first-rounder for you because we need to save that because we got to get some linemen and some other supporting cast members. So we can't give the first-round pick for you. I well, give I'm, you a, I give you a second-rounder, but I don't know if we have a second-rounder in this upcoming draft. Okay, we're not playing Madden here, all right? The AI is <laughs> <laughs> But and one other thing I, want, I wanted to bring up, so much hate is going out against Bell and Brown, but really right now it seems to be focused – on Antonio Brown. And I was so glad that Mike Mitchell actually chimed in. Mike Mitchell, a former Pittsburgh Steeler, and he came out and said, you know what, I don't care what's going on out there. Antonio Brown was one of the best teammates I ever had. And I'm glad he took the social media and put that out there because the smear campaign is going to get started by number seven, who was granted full access by the GM I don't care what you say out there, Ben. Say whatever you want to. And so Ben's going to try to clear his name, but uh, it looks like Antonio Brown had a had a counter strike and, and is taking on Big Ben. Yeah, like I said earlier, it's a strange dynamic there in Pittsburgh, um, and uh, it it kind of if I'm a Steeler player, it kind of makes me think, who am I playing for? 
Yeah, um, sure. So it, interesting. Um, didn't, and then the next, the really the other piece is Le'Veon Bell, right? And you kind of, you kind of led with that, and without the transition tag, they decided not to do a transition tag on Le'Veon Bell, and and he's set to be a, a free man, and and that's a that's one heck of a sweepstakes that's going to be out there for his services. So uh, I think I think several teams are going to line up to to get his dynamic services um, because not only can he run it. We all know he can catch it out of the backfield, but he's actually a pretty good blocker up front in the passing game too. Um, he's not afraid to drop his shoulder and 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 protect his quarterback. So, absolutely. And, uh, and I, Stevie, the the free agent class that we have out there, it some of these guys will be re-signed. All right, so look, look but just listen to some of the names. Oh man, uh, you got the Marcus Lawrence and Jadavian Clowney, Earl Thomas, and the magic of Nick Foles. Uh, and Dominican Sue, who disappeared, I, he he is not a top free agent in my book. Uh, you have Golden Tate, Mark Ingram, T. Sizzle, your boy Ha Ha Clinton Dix, Cameron Wake, T. Mobile, Tyrod Taylor, Clay Matthews, C.J. Anderson, Adrian Peterson, and I left one name that that I highlighted to the end, Robbie Gold. Uh, they said he's he's gonna get franchised. <laughs> he's gonna get franchised by the 49ers, is what I hear. So a, a lot of big names in that market, a lot of money to spend by some teams. Uh it'll be interesting where all these guys go. Again, some of these guys are gonna be re-signed, so they'll never hit the hit the open market. But uh there's enough well, names out there that it, it should be an interesting uh free agency period. Well, that's interesting. So David uh Jadavian Clowney, I don't know if he'll get re-signed by the Texans. Other than, do they really? Uh, can they afford to re-sign? Great question. Right. You, so you got all that money in, in JJ Watt over right, on the other right. side. And then, uh, so I think Lawrence probably stays with the Cowboys. Earl Thomas is out in Seattle. We don't even know if he's going to play again. Nick Foles, you know, that's an interesting saga there. Sue. I, he'll get a contract. I don't think it's as big as he is as he thinks he's going to get. But Mark Ingram, can the Saints find a way to keep him and keep that dynamic one-two punch with with Kamara? They that, have that's to. interesting. That's an interesting one right there. They have to because when when Ingram was out uh, for the first four games, and and you saw uh, Elvin Kamara, not that he played bad, no, not at all. But it's it's a different offense. Right, you have that fire and lightning going on between those two. Uh, it, it changes the whole dynamic. Yeah, uh, again, you know, from a Jet fan perspective, there's, you know, changing to a to a uh, a three four defense. Uh, I mean, to a four three from a three four. You know, I would love to see a, a clowny come in because we need we need some rushers, right? And we got a ton of money. Terrell Suggs. You know, Suggs isn't going anywhere. You know that. T-Sizzle. T-Sizzle's going back with the Ravens. I feel bad for Tyrod Taylor. I, I really do. <laughs> He's still in the league? Is he still in the league? Because he had his shot. And, you know, th- that's the one thing about, about sports and really life in general. Think about it. Tyrod came in as, as a late-round draft pick in the NFL, really to be a serviceable backup to Joe Flacco. That's why he, why he was brought in. 
in his mind, he had aspirations of becoming a Super Bowl winning quarterback, right? He thought and believed in his ability, but he hung around. And when given the opportunity uh, and through, the, through going to Buffalo, he became a starting quarterback and became an all-pro quarterback, right? He went to the Pro Bowl, but Buffalo didn't do much behind him. They, they failed him. Oh, they did him wrong. They, they did him wrong. They, they did him wrong, and they failed him by not putting the proper weapons and utilizing, you know, we talked about it before. You can't put uh, a, a square peg into a round hole, and that's what they did with, with Tyrod. They tried to create an offense and said, Tyrod, this is what the offense we want you to play. Well, that didn't work for him, and, and we saw how it, how it ended for him. So then he, he gets an opportunity to go to Cleveland. Right, and he was the whole goal by Hugh Jackson was to have Tyrod play and let Baker Mayfield learn. But Tyrod played so bad <laughs> and then got hurt that it just opened the door for Baker Mayfield. And I don't know if Tyrod's ever going to recover from this. I don't know if he will either. Um, but this is what I will say if Mark Sanchez is able to <laughs> hang around in the league, for the Cowboys and the Bears and the Redskins and the, I don't know what, what other teams he's played for. The Jets? Uh, well, he was a starter for the Jets, right? I'm talking about hanging around as a backup, but I know you had to throw that in there. I'm surprised you didn't mention the old uh, butt fumble. Oh, I just did. My bad. Um, Tyrod Taylor will always have a home. Some, he'll have a home somewhere. Whether he'll get that shot again. If you're Tyrod Taylor, you got to find the NFL team that wants you as a backup where that quarterback is on shaky ground, whether he's injury prone or they're not sold sold on a quarterback. And if you have that opportunity to sign there, go go ahead and take it. Because um, I hopefully he does get a, another legitimate shot at being a starting quarterback. Because I looked at him in Buffalo and I said, wow, you know, he he's a dynamic quarterback. Let's face it, he went 10-5 and five as a starter and in the one – one game failure with Nate Peterman, which he should never have been benched for Nate Peterman for that one game. Legitimately could have won 11 or five as a starter and, and team was close to winning a playoff game. Right. So I think he's got the capability of doing it. He's just got to find a coach in an offensive corner that believes in his talent and allows him to thrive in an offense that will not play conservative behind him. Let the but kid are play. You, are you going to find that as a backup? But here, but but I'm saying that look, we we've seen other quarterbacks come out of nowhere and make a career as a from a backup status, right? It's a matter of can you find that right team as a backup, right? I give you I give you an example, okay? Uh, and this may not be the greatest example, but let's say he's a free agent and they need a backup to Aaron Rodgers, okay? Aaron Rodgers got a few playmakers. Aaron Rodgers breaks his collarbone for the 19th time in his career. <laughs> Right, and Tyra Taylor has now got to come in, and he's able to show teams what he can do. Maybe he does get his shot again, right? I don't think he does. He probably doesn't. I, I'm, I don't try, I'm trying does. to put the silver lining out there, right? I'm trying to what's that the rainbow or what? Yeah. That, the, how to go at the end of the rainbow or whatever yeah. the stupid sayings are, right? I'm trying to paint that for him because I think the kid's got a lot of heart, and and when you are a small quarterback, okay, you and I'm trying to put my words here carefully. When you're a small quarterback, you have to work a lot harder because sure. small quarterbacks don't get their shot in the league. Sure. And uh, but he's got to be put in a situation. I thought he had the situation in Buffalo. I really thought he did. And then 
And then Sean decides, you know what? He's not my guy. And we're going in a different direction. And he convinced leadership to get rid of, which I really think that the leadership really didn't want him anyway. So it was an easy sell for Sean McDonough, the coach of the Bills, to get rid of him after that one year. Well, he, he was – now let's let call a spade a spade. He, he is a Rex guy, right? He was Rex's guy. When Rex got the job, that's who that was the first player he brought over. And I think to your point, small quarterbacks, the deck is stacked against you, right? Because you have the prototypical quarterback in, in height, in stature, in arm strength, the intangibles, et cetera, you know, like, et cetera. Like a Colin Kaepernick? In size and structure of the six foot four, two hundred twenty five pound quarterback no, with a great arm. He's a lefty. We we need righties as quarterbacks. <laughs> 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 but yes, like Colin Kaepernick. I thought you were going to say like Sam Darnold, but <laughs> <laughs> but so you know, yeah, the deck is stacked against him. But here here's here's the thing, and this is where. I feel bad, but it's it's life, right? For a guy like Tyrod Taylor, when you are drafted so low with so little expectation. Now, yes, Brady was drafted in the sixth round. I get that. But when you're when you are of that stature, that ilk, where they say that you're a project, you are basically doomed to be a backup and a oftentimes a free agent quarterback that is really never given your shot and your opportunity in the right situation. And no matter how much success you may have in your limited opportunities, they're always looking at you as that backup. And you could look quarterback after quarterback. As I said, yes, Brady was a sixth rounder, came in there and it has made a hall of fame career. I get that. But for more often than not, the guy that gets drafted anywhere outside of the third round is is destined to be a backup. Yeah, I think history has shown that. I think you're you're spot on with that. After the third round, you really don't get a fair shake, which is sad because if you have talent, it doesn't matter what draft what round you get drafted in. It it's the coach's responsibilities to find that talent and get that talent out of that play to see if he's legit. I always found that stupid in the NFL that like. Again, I, I can only really speak about the Jets more so than other teams because I follow them so closely. Vernon Golston is a typical first-round draft pick of the Jets. All this talent at Ohio State stinks beyond compare. Stinks. Just awful. He was so undersized at his position in the NFL. It, I, I think the linemen just kind of laughed at it. What's this gnat hanging around me? Why is this gnat? And just they would swat him, and he'd go down to the ground, right? He'd never hear from Vernon Golston again. But he got four years in the league to try and – or five years in the league to prove himself because he was a first-round pick. Mm-hmm. You got you got fourth and fifth – six-rounders that are working their butts off that really can't get a, a legitimate shot for whatever reason because they're at the fifth and sixth round. But maybe because they had to deal with this their whole life, their heart would actually make them more of a superstar, but they're never given a shot. Absolutely. Because how many D linemen – how many D linemen come into league at late-round picks? You never heard of this guy before, and you're like – Wow, where did this guy come from? And then, like four years into his career, he becomes a stud. Well, maybe he could have been a stud in his first year if you give him a shot, right? Now, again, it, not everybody is a stud in the fifth and sixth round, but 
Uh, I think it's they're there. They're just not given that opportunity because the guy was drafted in the first round ahead of him, and that guy is given every opportunity to succeed. He's probably even got a better food plan than the six round pick it's when you go to lunch, the, it's right? Because of the investment, right? Right, because you're drafted, and I'm. It, it's not guaranteed money, but I'm guaranteeing you X amount of dollars over a period of time. And that's so, where I think the NFL fails because of that mentality. Absolutely. Because, because how many how many people have amazing careers, not Hall of Fame careers, but amazing careers that never went drafted, but worked their butt off to get an invite to training camp or signed as an, an undrafted free agent and works their butt off and have amazing careers. I think a guy like, for some reason in my head, Rod Smith of the Denver Broncos, wide receiver, undrafted wide receiver, had a phenomenal career in Denver. Phenomenal career in Denver. Those, those are, there are so many guys out there that have that talent level or are not given a fair shot because of where they've been drafted or they weren't drafted, and it doesn't cost the team any money. So eh, if it fails, it's really not a big deal. But if you actually paid attention to the kid, you may actually have something there. Instead of wasting all the time on Vernon Golston, that everybody known you when you drafted him he's a wasted pick. All right, I'm done with that soapbox. <laughs> but no, I, I think I think you're right I, about Tyrod Taylor. His shot came and went, though. His shot came and went in Buffalo, came and went in, in Cleveland, and he won't get that shot again. And it, it's it's sad, but he'll still have an NFL paycheck because somebody will sign him to be a, a, a number two. So just just to wrap this one up with a little bit of a bow here, you were mentioning undrafted and you gave rod smith let me give you two names and i I need you to brace yourself warren moon john randall you know john randall well well, look those are two like i mean you want to talk about hall of fame players right i mean warren moon um the, the career he had in the CFL, and then you compare his numbers, CFL with the NFL are just mind-boggling, right? Mm-hmm. We, we talk about the greats of the game. We got robbed in the NFL with, with Warren Moon, right? We got robbed of Warren, Warren Moon. Now, he played 16 years in the NFL, probably take away the, the last year or two of his career, maybe the last year of his career because he wasn't as productive at the end of his career. But when he, what he did in the CFL, and you can find those two numbers, those are ridiculous numbers, right? We call it those like Monopoly money. I mean, that's what it is, right? It's like Monopoly numbers, uh, what Warren Moon put up uh, in the era that he played in. And then John Randall. You want to talk about a motor that just didn't stop, right? I mean, that unbelievable personality and his tenaciousness that once that game started, uh, his laser focus was was, was almost unmatched. Uh, so you're right. And, you know, it's funny, John Randall, I, I didn't know Warren Moon went undrafted. I know he went to the CFL. I didn't know he was undrafted. I think that's, uh, why, that's why he went there. Okay. Uh, would they want to try and move him to wide receiver? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Probably. And then, and then uh, John Randall, I knew that he was an undrafted because I remember watching the football life from the NFL Network that he was undrafted. But for some reason, Rod Smith, because I didn't want to go Hall of Fame, right? Not that – I was thinking John Randall and Warren Moon anyway, but I was looking for the very good player, like, like had an amazing career, uh, and it was just undrafted. You know, Wayne Corbett comes to mind, who had a very serviceable career in the NFL that went undrafted. Um, so they're out there, and if these teams paid attention to them and gave them a little bit more love, you may find that Hall of Fame player that you drafted. But because you didn't give him a shot, you never know. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And Stevie D, as we talk about quarterbacks and we talk about, um, you know, Hall of Famers, we're, we too are putting together the official word sports Hall of Fame, uh, where we're going to redo what we think should be the correct and proper Hall of Fame. But also to get to, to get us to that point, we're going to be doing our top 10 and top 15 lists of players by position. Um, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be fun. It's a huge undertaking. Um, I never imagined how, how much work goes into this. There, it is a lot of work, it, and especially when you're trying to do it right, and you're not trying to just do the average where everybody has the same names in their top 10 or 15, and it's just in different in different positions, right? We're attacking it from so many different angles and statistics and errors uh, where it, it really truly makes up for a little bit of a different top 10 or top 15 by position. And that, that's what we're really looking forward to as, as we dive into it and say, wow, I never would have thought that guy would have been in the top 15. But when you, when you look at the numbers and you, and you see the error that he played in, you're like, oh, yeah, that, that makes sense. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a fun time. Absolutely. And, and to, go, to go along with that, and as far as our statistical gathering, we actually reached out to Sean Cunningham to get his insight. He was uh, an author of multiple articles, but he did one specific to uh, looking back at the era of football and the transition to where we are and how the rules have benefited not only offenses, but quarterbacks in particular. So when we come back, we're going to have Sean Cunningham in an interview with Sean Cunningham. And Stevie D, we're back. And we are fortunate to have with us uh, for this segment, Sean Cunningham. And you know how we are knee deep in trying to comb through all these stats to try to put together our top 50 lists, our top 10 lists. And of course, ultimately, our goal is to define the official word sports hall of fame. Uh, we were doing the search and we ran across an article from Sean Cunningham, how NFL rule changes created the golden era of quarterback stats. It just fell out of my chair on this article, Stevie D. Yeah. I, when you, when you sent that article over to me and I, and I went through it, I, I was, it was really, you want to talk about hitting it head on and that's what it was. And, uh, and I believe Sean, and, and I'll talk about it here in a second, he, he partnered with Tim Hasselbeck uh, of ESPN to kind of help write that article and kind of fine-tune that article um, to really show how the game has changed and how the quarterback uh, through the different eras, especially in the 90s all the way to today, how the rules changed really have benefited them and kind of propelled certain quarterbacks you, you wouldn't think that were really high up on the list. But then you look at their stats and you're just like, holy cow, look at their stats. They're, they're just off the charts. So I'm really excited for today. Real excited for today. Absolutely. And so just a, just a little background. Uh, Sean not only has written for CNN.com, Made Man, Men's Journal, Esquire, but he's also uh, currently the writer for Real Clear Life. And he's done so many other things. You know, we were giving him a hard time uh, leading up to the interview uh, about one of uh, his pieces that he wrote in the past, The Women of Summer, where, you know, my girlfriend was excluded. But we won't go, in, won't go into that one too much. 
I just would like to welcome Sean Cunningham to the show. Sean? Thank you. Thanks so much. I, I apologize again for that exclusion. Uh, I'll try to work on that one in the future. <laughs> so, Sean, again, thanks for thanks for coming on. And, and as I was leading up, Stevie D and I, you know, we have been having this debate forever in a day, how to define who is the greatest, who is the top 10 when the league has gone through uh, a metamorphosis, if you will, over the years, and, and especially with the rule changes and uh, just the way that the defenses are being called and also the way the offenses are being called. So when, when you sat down to write your article, how, how did you kind of put everything together? Well, for me, I, I just really wanted to look at the rules because I, I felt like, and I think uh, anyone who's you know watched football for any chunk of time, I definitely felt like uh, the NFL wanted offenses to succeed, which makes sense. I mean, obviously your quarterbacks are your biggest stars, but I also was going, you know, this is just my feeling, you know, why, why don't I actually sit down and look at rule changes? And so I wound up just kind of going through, uh, you know, a list of a huge amount of rule changes. And uh, I found that uh, starting in 1993, there were, I, I wound up highlighting seven kind of major rule changes that wound up either protecting quarterbacks, protecting receivers, uh, reducing, I mean, one of the rules that just makes it easier to throw away the ball without it being intentional grounding, which, you know, protects quarterbacks, but also reduces interceptions. And uh, just a lot of things that would allow, most of all, for a quarterback to stay healthy, which obviously is half the game. And, and beyond that, it just made it harder to guard, you know, to guard receivers, it made the receivers safer. And it just had a lot of it, you know, again, it was just like a lot of reasons why you could look at quarterbacks today and say, wow, that's why, you know, Tom Brady, you know, seems to get better than ever at an age, you know, Joe Montana had been out of the game for five years. And and then I was lucky enough to talk to Tim Hasselbeck, uh, you know, he used to play quarterback in the NFL before working for ESPN and just kind of, you know, getting his thoughts on how these rules would have helped him as a quarterback. And, and again, so we wound up with, I believe, seven uh, between 1993 through the present day that he felt like, yeah, these are key. These really would, you know, help any quarterback have a, have a better career. Sure. So, you know, as you guys looked in the rules and, and you mentioned a few there, especially the intentional grounding and trying to protect the, the receivers and the quarterbacks, if you were to step out of it for a second and just take quarterbacks of present day, do you think they'd have a shot to play in yesteryear? Yeah, I, I do. I, I just think it's the key would be they just wouldn't they wouldn't last this long. I mean, it would be that simple. I, I just feel like, uh, I, and I, I mentioned specifically in the article, uh, Steve Young, uh, you know, a Hall of Fame quarterback with the Niners and some other people, but he just took such a brutal hit that ended his career. I mean, it's really scary to watch. And if you dealt out a hit like that on a quarterback nowadays, you'd be out of the game forever. I, I don't even know if it was a penalty. And it just really was a time where, you know, quarterbacks could expect to be uh, crushed. It, it, again, like, you know, I, let me just scroll to get the exact ruling. Uh, but there was one rule I remember that specifically said something. Oh, here it is. Uh, it is 2002. It is illegal to hit a quarterback helmet to helmet any time after a change of possession. And basically, uh, that meant that before 2002, if a quarterback threw an interception and he's kind of, you know, he's probably just trying to figure out what the hell's happening. It used to be that defenders could really just target him at that point and just take him out, I mean, and they could do it helmet to helmet. I mean, and think about that. I mean, that takes that's going to shorten your career. There's just no two ways about it. 
You know, I, that, that's an interesting one because I really never thought of from from that perspective that a quarterback, that that a, a defensive player would all take a cheap shot on a quarterback that wasn't in the play. You've seen it done, but over and over again, where you would see a quarterback just getting targeted like that on every interception. But you're right; if that happens four or five times in your career alone, that's maybe four or five more concussions you're going to get. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, Tim Hasselbeck made the point that uh, you know a good quarterback is, is someone who at least for part of their possession, is just focused on the receiver. You know, like you're really locked in. You're kind of forgetting everything happening around you, and you're really vulnerable. And, you know, it's understandable if the NFL would say, well, let's reduce the dangers at this point. And, and he noted specifically that beyond being vulnerable in that moment, a, a big thing was the that then defenders would try to slam you into the ground as hard as possible. And beyond that hit, he said that usually you get that kind of the double, snap, the double tap which is where you're, you know, you're, let's say yes. that someone uh, slams you, you know, your, your back slams against the ground, and then your head kind of bounces up and then smacks down again. So you're getting like a double whiplash thing. And the NFL really did consciously decide we're going to get rid of this. And, you know, you can't blame them from a sense of, you know, you want Brady to play as long as possible. You want, you know, Peyton and Drew Brees and uh, Philip Rivers to a slightly lesser extent to keep playing as long as possible. No offense, Mr. Rivers, but you know, I, I do think it's led to these quarterbacks who have, you know, like really massive stats. You never think of as particularly great quarterbacks. Um, the one I cited was Carson Palmer, who uh, was a number one draft pick and had a good career, but I, I'm almost, I mean, he's like ahead of, you know, way ahead of Johnny Unitas. He's ahead of Joe Montana. And it's just, you know, that, that was Carson Palmer. That's not, the guy, I, you know, I, I didn't even think of him as particularly healthy during his career. I mean, he had a couple really bad injuries, but he still was able to keep going for longer than guys even, you know, during like a, you know, the 80s, uh, like the Montana uh, Marino era would have ever imagined that they could play. So, Sean, let, let me tell you, and as, as you start to bring in some of the comparisons here, uh, yes. Steve and I started our own uh, point system for evaluating quarterbacks, basically oh, cool. the modern the modern era quarterbacks. Uh, yeah. What what we did though is we gave a a percentage boost to those quarterbacks that played in the '60s and the '70s and the '80s. Conversely, we did, gave a a subtraction to those quarterbacks that play in today's time and maybe in the 2000s. Uh, and in the 90s, just to try to level the playing field. Uh, and mm. it really, basically, when the rule changes started to take effect, and, so, and very eloquently, you had in your article, you know, you, you marked the time frame. It was interesting, as we went through this, some of the names that either fell out of the top 10 or some that jumped into the top 10. Uh, but the the real interesting thing, and I guess maybe not so interesting, our top two quarterbacks were Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, one, two, um, hmm. with Montana and Favre uh, coming in right behind him. The, one of the things that we did, and again, you know, it, we looked at the completion uh, and we adjusted the completion, uh, number of completions that they had, the number of attempts in yards. Again, all of this is predicated upon the era of the game, right? Because if you look at today's mm. game, with all of the rule changes, it, it's really designed, as you mentioned, to keep the quarterback healthy, right? Uh, but mm. 
it also impacts the defense in a certain way, the way that they actually play, uh, trying to avoid pass interference, illegal contacts, things of that sort. You no longer have uh, the ability to really go after a wide receiver. You can remember in years mm-hmm. past, you know, even as much as Greg Williams with uh, his bounty gate, but, you know, to the arrows before that, it was all about trying to, to just knock out the wide receiver, especially early in the game, so that he would hear those footsteps. And yeah. you, don't, yeah. you don't have that anymore. So we tried to adjust that, and then we gave some, some uh, kudos, if you will, some bonus points uh, if the player was a, a AP uh, first, first uh, selection. And so, again, going through all of those stats, it was amazing that the top four or top five that we always talk about they, they really had a lock, <laughs> no matter what era, no matter uh, what type of ranking you want to do, they had a lock there. Yeah, no, I, I do think that, you know, the, the cream rises to the top. I mean, I, I, that was a point that Tim made. And he said that, you know, you look at the great quarterbacks, they, you know, they always are kind of, uh, what is it? I, I think the standard, what is it like the ideal height is always said has been 6'4", I believe. And they tend to, you know, that's, tends to carry back, and they always have the strong arm, and they're poised under pressure. They tend to be able to – well, I mean, like Tom Brady, for instance, isn't a scrambler, but he moves really well in terms of – he just he, – you know, you watch him in the Super Bowl, and he just avoids a lot of contact. I don't know how he does it because he's, he is a remarkably slow individual, but, you know, it, he's so efficient. And, you know, clearly that guy – I mean, clearly he would have been successful whenever he played. Uh, it's – just, you know, I, I don't think he would – I think it would have been these last – you know, this last preseason run, though. I just don't think it would have – you know, he would have been long retired. So, you know, he would have had a remarkable career, but he wouldn't have had this insane – you know, he six is insane. Whereas if you had to stop at three, that's still really, like, scary good. But six is just incredible. Right. Yeah. Right. Also, I, actually, I'd be curious what I asked you guys. One thing that I've always wondered about, I always felt that Drew Brees was underrated and, like, snubbed by other, you know, sports writers traditionally. How did he stack up? Actually, funny you mentioned yeah. it. Drew, yeah. Drew Brees is, it, depending on how you want to look at it, but he's really tied for fifth on our list. Hmm. With, uh, with, with Aaron Rodgers. Right. Yeah. So you have yeah. Roethlisberger, Brees, and Rodgers all – uh, in our in our total points category, and you know, I welcome everybody when we post it to our website, officialwordsports.com. Take a look at the rankings that we have. But Breeze is right up there, right? He, you know, mm-hmm. just to read off our top ten, it's Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Joe Montana, Brett Favre, Dan Marino, then Aaron Rodgers, Drew Breeze, Ben Roethlisberger, Steve Young, and John Elway. Yeah. And then yeah, you have that, that second tier, right? And then that, that second tier it, it has some interesting names in that second tier, though, Vince. It does. Because right? the second tier is what's interesting when you when you look at the numbers. I, I know we're outside the top 10, but uh, when you have Daryl LaMonica at 18, right? Like, I, I wouldn't even think of him being that high, but mm-hmm. with the adjusted rankings in the era he played in, kind of he kind of sneaks in there. It's just interesting. Yes, and that's yeah. also where you'll find Johnny Unitas, who I thought was you know, when I initially started to put things together. I'm like, Johnny U's got to be in there. I mean, he is Mr. Quarterback, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, 
there's some other contributing factors that may have dropped him down a little lower than, than the Brady's and the Manning's and what have you, but he falls into that second tier. Yeah. It's hard to quite, I mean, I will say that just to cite one example, uh, Otto Graham was someone who I think retired in you know the early fifties. So that's a, a career from a long time ago. And that guy, you know, played 10 years and he won the title in seven of them. And, you know, like, that's insane, you know, like, and he still has the average uh, highest, he still averages the most yards per career pass attempt. So every time he threw the ball, you know, like he would give you more yards than anybody else in NFL history. And that's remarkable. And clearly he's a truly great quarterback. And, and similarly, if you look at Johnny United's stats from like other guys from that era, they're just so far ahead of people or, you know, Dan Marino, for instance, I mean, look at his career marks, which, you know, when I remember when he had, you know, three is 420 at the uh, touchdown. And that seemed like an unbeatable mark because for so long it would be, I think John Elway was like number two with 300. And then just this wave of players came along and suddenly you have, I, I think four people already have thrown over 500 touchdowns. And yes. it, you know, it just seemed impossible. And, it, right. and so I, I do think it's, that's the kind of, for me, the, the challenge is just trying to figure out really how you quantify different eras because they're so different and how you kind of handle somebody who's like a weird outlier, like Dan Marino, who also obviously never won a Super Bowl, So he's got that knock against him, but just put up these, you know, crazy numbers, numbers that are you know almost competitive with today's quarterbacks, but compared to the guys he's playing against, you know, he's like 25% better than anybody else. You know what I mean? That's, I, yeah, that, that's what I kind of struggle with is Dan Marino. There's, there's no doubt. Uh... When, when you look at the players from, uh, I, I would say from anywhere from the 1980s era, right? So mm-hmm. all the way through 1989 and earlier, you look at the offenses that were being played, right? It, it was a running and then a passing game type of offense. Yeah. Um, and so when you saw somebody like a Dan Marino, the knock was always that he didn't have a running game to supplement uh, his team and, and his passing ability, but they tried to run, right? They mm. still tried whether, no matter what running back that they brought in, you know, insert running back name here down for the Dolphins, they, they really could never get it done on the ground, and it was a very imbalanced type, type offense, very productive through the air. Uh, mm. But the, the passing game for Marino – was still just so dynamic that, you know, he was able to put up the gaudy, uh, the gaudy numbers, but it did not lead to, to championships. Only one Super Bowl appearance, which he lost. And, and that was it. That was it. I, I think if you put Marino in today's era where now it's more of a spread offense, if you look at mm-hmm. the way the Patriots run the pick in the rub, uh, he'd have guys open all day, <laughs> all night. And, yeah. Not only would he put up the numbers that he had back in the 80s and 90s, but I think he potentially he could blow every stack category away. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I, I mean, again, he just, he, he, again, the fact that he, like he said, he could do so much back then, and, and he probably would play longer. He probably would have a longer, healthier career. I, I, yeah, I think that he would put up scary numbers. What was interesting, and Steve and I talked a little bit about this as well, back in, when was it, 86, uh, the Cincinnati Bengals 
had introduced the no huddle offense really. And, and for Sam Weiss, he was, he was kind of credited with this new newfangled type offense that was hitting the NFL where Boomer would just go call the, call the play at the line. A lot of time left on the plate clock before they would snap the ball, not give the defense a lot of time to react. Uh, mm. And I'm a Buffalo Bills fan. And certainly uh, here we, we go. Here yes. we go with Buffalo. <laughs> Well, we, we took that and we upped it, you know, to a whole nother level, uh, giving Kelly the ability to Jim Kelly, the ability to call the plays at the line. And you saw how productive he was, you know, renaming that wow. offense to the K gun. But then if you think about it, Ted Marchabroda, who was the Bills offensive coordinator at the time, went to Indianapolis and really, even though it wasn't no huddle, redefined offense for Peyton Manning. And, and so Manning, in a byproduct was, uh, you know, if you look at the offensive tree, comes down from Sam White to Ted Marchabroda to Indianapolis. Yeah, no, it, it's fascinating how it all ties together. I, I always felt like Jim Kelly didn't, you know, just because he didn't actually win the Super Bowl, you know, he's never got enough credit. And I, I will say, actually, this is one thing I, it was a weird fact that I discovered about Peyton Manning, but it seems worth mentioning. And that is, uh, you know, the first time he, when he finally won the Super Bowl with Indiana, in, in the four games in the playoffs, uh, I'm, I'm looking up right here just to confirm this, but he threw over those four games three touchdowns total, four games, seven interceptions. Yeah, that's right. Yep. I mean, that's about as poorly as you can play in, a, in big games, but he got a Super Bowl ring out of it. You know, and, and again, with his final Super Bowl ring, if you recall, in the Super Bowl, I mean, he just had nothing left in that right. game. You know, like that was really, they were, you know, like that was just their defense was very good and just beat the heck out of Carolina. I don't know. That's why I struggle with Peyton Manning at number two. The numbers dictate it. But when I look at Peyton Manning in big games and his postseason career, he wasn't, right? I think we yeah. all agree that in that Super Bowl, he shouldn't have got that Super Bowl MVP with Indianapolis. That should have went to Joseph yeah. Adai, who had like nine or ten catches out of the backfield. And I think he had another 80 to 90 yards rushing in that game. He should have been the MVP, yeah. not Peyton Manning with one yeah, touchdown and two picks. Won. Totally. And, and their offensive line was scary good. I remember also the Colts line just shutting. You know, that's the tough thing with MVP awards, where I just remember, like, that whole line was just dominant. And, and you do sometimes go, you know, can you just – again, every so often I watch a game, I'm just like, can you just give it to the entire line? Because, boy, they're just – you can't do anything against them. They're, they're just, like, in control. And, you know, and when I obviously when an offensive line – you know, it's just doing whatever they want, then everything else falls into place pretty quickly. It's interesting how we talk about Manning and his deficiencies in the big game. When when you try to rank a player, there's so many of the intangibles that really cannot be accounted for. And I, I love stats. I, I can look at stats all day long, but I don't like how they use sabermetrics in baseball. I don't like how they're bringing the, the sabermetric or the stats into football it's only good for debate. <laughs> and yeah. That's what I like about it. So that you could say, well, you know, this guy should be ranked number one because of this. And somebody else can counter you, you know, would say, well, he didn't do it in this game. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, when you look at the body of work, right, my cake may be delicious, but you might not like the frosting. right? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah I, I agree with you. I, I've always felt like the other thing that Sabermetric says is it sort of holds that every game is, every moment in every game is equal to every other moment. And that's not true. Uh, and again, I definitely feel like you can take like one fourth quarter out of context and, you know, really throw off things. But 
and I'm saying this as a Jets fan, so you know this is tearing out my soul. Wait, so, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Can you back um, up for a second, Sean? Can you back up for a second? Yes. Did you say what team mm-hmm. did you root for? Yeah, you heard me. Yeah. No, 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 no. I, I want no. I, yes, I am a Jets fan. Yes. Yes, so I am, am I. So. Just so I just want to say on the record, <laughs> okay. I am a Jets right. fan you, as well. So I just want to make sure. How, I'm how did I miss? How did I miss this before I booked this interview? What <laughs> in the world? Yeah. Way to go, Sean. Way to go, Sean. Yeah, I heard the sadness. I, it was a shared bond of misery. So, but I will just say that you know Tom Brady, watching him do it in fourth quarter after fourth quarter after fourth quarter, and at times you know in the uh, I'm thinking specifically of I guess both the Super Bowl against Seattle and and against the Falcons where he goes through stretches where he's like his own running game too because it's either like him throwing slightly longer passes or those little quick jump offs. They just abandon the run. And, you know, he's a machine out there. And, he, and eventually you go, you know, that guy has something. When the, when the chips are down, he gets it done. You know, he, at a minimum, he's going to put you in a position to win it. And I, I do think that it's hard to quantify that. But clearly, after six freaking Super Bowls, yeah, it's there. You can't deny it. I try to deny it. And I'll tell you, I <laughs> I do. What? I realized for like four, which is crazy. I was just like, like I'm like, it's only four, and then after five and six, I was like, okay, now it's really gotten kind of. Yeah, but you know what's so crazy? What's really crazy about that is how close he could add two more. I mean, the miracle yeah. play against the Giants, which should have been in the grasp, and he gets the miracle throw, yeah. the miracle catch off, right? And then really, that that long drive uh, and the second one with that really good throw down the sideline to Mario Manningham kind of set up that drive. Yeah, but that I mean. I mean, it's 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 the crazy to think about. He could have eight, but he he's played nine. in nine. Eagles, if yeah, I mean, they had a shot at the Eagles, I and mean, that was right. Yeah, but hold nine. on, That's... hold on. You guys are giving credit. If it wasn't for the Tuck rule, he never would have had one. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. sure. All right, they would, we'll, we'll, distra- we'll we'll deduct the first one. Hold on. Well, then, if it, if it wasn't for Pete Carroll making a boneheaded decision and not giving the ball to Marshawn Lynch. He wouldn't have had that one. But he did so, have that. They're still at four, though. I mean, you know, <laughs> and that's the thing about you. Like, you, you nitpick away at him, and you're like, you still got four of them. You know, that, he, that's the scary thing about Tom Brady, you know. Part of what we have talked about in the past, and, and tell me what you think about this. Yes, he does have four in the five, and he's been the nine. I, I get all that. But a lot of it, especially if you look at the Atlanta game, and even just his his the second half of his career, a lot of it is just built up the aura and intimidation as opposed to the skill and the ability, right? Because teams, just like when Joe Montana came on the field, teams knew, oh boy, we're in trouble. Here comes Montana. Teams think the same thing about Brady, and it's not as much what Brady's doing. It's that these defenses get tight. The defensive coordinators get tight. They're afraid to call certain things. And so then he's able to just march down the field. You, you don't see the pressure. You don't see the, the almost the physicality. It's almost like in their mind they've been beaten before the, even the first snap. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yes, he, he came back. I, I will say when it's such a deep hole, and boy, he did not look good at the beginning of either the Seattle game or the Atlanta game. I mean, he looked bad. And they, have, they built big leads. And I, I just feel like, yeah, he definitely intimidates them. But, you know, if, if that doesn't give you confidence, what will? I mean, you, you're taking it to him. You, you've taken it to him. You have it. You know, it's not like you had to just give up. You only had to score one touchdown. He's, he's scoring a bunch of them on you. So, uh, and 
Yeah, I, I, I hear you, but I also feel like it, at a certain point, it, it's it's like the scariness of, you know, I, I remember a, a Charles Barkley uh, one, you know, once had this uh, a quote about playing against Jordan in the finals when he was with the Suns, and he said that the most heartbreaking thing of all about it was that there was one game where he said, I was playing as well as I could. I, I got his plan better than anybody else on the planet except the guy across from me. And they won that game against us. And he said, what can you do at that point? Were you giving it everything you have and you knew exactly what you were going to have to do and you still lost. And I do think Brady's good at that, at the sense of like, you know, that you throw everything at him and then you make like little mistakes too. And like, and, and he just, you know, he seizes all of them. I mean, it's really, I mean, those two, again, this uh, Seattle and the Atlanta game, my God. I mean, it was just every little glitch. And you just knew, you're like, no, don't be, you know, you can't miss a first down by two inches. It's going to haunt you forever. You know what I mean? Like every little mistake, you know, it's, it's going to get you. And yeah, I, I think it's, I think it is definitely reputation, but it's like an, it's an earned reputation. You know, it's something that backs up, you know, pretty much every big game. This is true. I, I will concede to that point. Well, Sean, it was a pleasure to have you on. Pleasure to uh, speak football. And more than anything, thank you so much for giving us the periodical and resource to use as the basis as we try to create our list, our top 10. Oh, my pleasure. I mean, thank you. This is such a treat. And, uh, you know, you guys are doing God's work. I mean, really, if you can ever definitively figure out like who the top five quarterbacks are in a way that the rest of the world can't dispute it. I mean, I think you just go straight to heaven. (laughs) I'm liking that one. I can use all the help I can get. (laughs) Well, listen, uh, again, for anybody out there who, who wants to check in on Sean, I would absolutely recommend to read this article. It's a great article, How NFL Rules Changes Created a Golden Era of Quarterback Stats. So good. And then you, you can check them out at Real Clear Life. Sean, again, thank you so much for coming on. And we'd love to have you on again, especially once we get our Hall of Fame up. Have you take a look at that and tell us what you think. I'd be delighted. Thank All right. Thanks. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. So, Stevie D, that was that was awesome to get an interview uh, like that with Sean Cunningham. Great insight. And it was interesting how he said that he was working with Tim Hasselbeck from ESPN as he was writing his article and how they were using uh, just some of the logic and comparisons to be able to define the rules and in, in how good a real a player would be compared in the eras yeah it was awesome and we can't thank sean enough for his time and uh, we look forward to having him back um when we kind of unveil our our quarterback our hall of fame quarterback class just another jet fan though unreal Ah, unreal we're like a weed baby we're everywhere you You never know when we're gonna pop up gonna need to go get some ortho or whatever it is (laughs) Because it is like a weed. Well, we'll sprout back up somewhere else. <laughs> so, Stevie D, let's let's head over to baseball. And yeah. I, I would like for us to take credit. You know, you had all these GMs that were talking to the agents and talking to whomever, and they couldn't get the deal done. As soon as you hear official word sports podcasts are talking about Manny Machado and whether or not he should get a 10-year deal, a three-year deal, a five-year deal, 300 million, 150, whatever. As soon as we start talking about it, what happens? Signed, sealed, delivered to the San Diego Padres. Now, what I'll say to that is, 
what are the San Diego Padres doing? <laughs> right? So they give him a 10 years, 300 million. And you heard it here first that Manny won't get past year four or five with San Diego and he'll be traded. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just the product of signing a contract. These contracts typically don't work out for the team. And honestly, if the Padres trade him around that time frame, they'll make out on the deal because what they're going to make up on ticket sales and Jersey sales in the front end of this contract will make it worth it. It's the tail end of the contract when the fans just don't care anymore that Manny's still there and the team really is not doing much because they don't have the funds to continue to invest in players. Right? They're making their run right now. They, they signed Hosmer last year. They got Machado this year. And they're going to try and make their run. But as soon as that run doesn't come into fruition, they're going to be like, uh-oh, we got Manny for nine more years at $270, $270 million. What do we do? And they're going to do the same thing after year two. Uh-oh, eight years, 240. What are we going to do? Um, and just like more, so many small market teams, you just can't make that investment in a 10-year contract with all that kind of money. It just doesn't work out. F. Seattle with Robinson, Robinson Cano. It just doesn't work. They made their run. Seattle went for it, right? They couldn't get it done. They couldn't even really get above 500 for most of the time when they tried to make that run. But they made their run. They were all in, got players, and now what are they doing? They're trading everybody, trying to get chips back to to kind of rebuild their farm system and, and hopefully in a couple of years compete again. It just doesn't work. So I, I really do not see the Padres being any type of force out in that National League West. I just I don't, don't. The Dodgers are too strong. Dodgers have way too much pitching. And we all know this. When and it comes down to crunch time, good pitching will it. be good hitting. You beat me to it. They have right. no pitching. And then let me don't sleep on the Rockies because the Rockies are a legit, legit team. They are legit. So, I, I honestly, I still look at San Diego at best with Manny Machado. They're still the third, maybe the fourth best team in that division. And you just spent $300 million. Right. If I was spending three hundred million dollars, do you think I'd be putting me in the class of I'm close to first place? No. Now, maybe San Diego would say, "Well, wait a minute. You you guys are not giving us enough credit. We're not saying we're ready to take the division in 2019, but 2021, when all our young players in our farm system are ready to go, we're going to be ready to compete." And, and, and maybe that's what they're thinking. Well, that's I, I don't a know. That's yeah. a stretch. Yeah. You're already out two years. Yeah, but right now. You're gonna cap. You're gonna cash in on the jersey sales, right? You're gonna cash in on ticket sales right now because it's a splash of Manny Machado. What what may be, and may, maybe you can cash in on that from a, a quick return on investment. And then they say, well, we'll 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 ride the wave into where our young kids that we have in the minors are all coming into the majors, and maybe they come a year early in 2020, and then that investment in Manny Machado and Eric Cosmo really start paying off. I don't know. I don't know what they're thinking. I really haven't scouted the Padres too much, um, but maybe that's what they're thinking. Because other than that, this deal doesn't make any sense um, unless Major League Baseball said, hey, we need somebody to step up. We'll pay half the contract uh, <laughs> to get this thing moving along, right? So, And then the other news, right, is we, we're hearing rumors of Bryce Harper to, to the Phillies um, is, is – is, not a, I wouldn't say an imminent deal is in the works where it could be tomorrow, but 
supposedly they're in heavy, heavy conversations. So that's going to be an interesting turn of events um, well, there. Let me know. Let me know if we want to see Bryce sign because again, we we can make it happen. That that's what we do. We make things happen. Well, you know, we we, we know plenty of people. We make those phone calls. We we advocate and where we can. And so, in all fairness, though, in all serious, I think Bryce Harper, it, it's a done deal here in the next few days. I, I think it's going to get done, whether it's a ten-year, three hundred million. Somebody threw out the number of three twenty-five just so he can one up Manny. Um, and, I, and, and and I do believe that. I believe that Harper was waiting to see what bar Machado was going to set, and I think Machado was waiting to see if they were playing a game of chicken. Yeah. And I think that Bryce said, "All right, so you've signed with San Diego for ten three hundred. You know, is ten three hundred one acceptable? Well, probably ten three twenty five, and that that's what I think he's going to get." Yeah, he's probably going to get around that. And, and I think, in all fairness, the reason why one of the reasons why it took so long, I think teams are sweating out the Yankees, uh, maybe hoping the Dodgers or the Red Sox would would kind of jump in, kind of push that a little bit. And when those big three didn't really bite, um, that's why it went in so long. I, I you know I think it's two part. One was they're trying to get these other teams hold off, hold off, hold off. Let's hold off on the White Sox offer. Let's let's see if people are going to come back with more money, uh, and then once we hit spring training, it wasn't there. It was okay. Who who's who wants to get in on this deal? And I think Manny just took the money because at the end of the day, I I don't know Manny personally, but I really think it was about the money in the years. And I think he came out and said it. He was looking for the most guaranteed money, and and, and San Diego was offering the most guaranteed money. So to me, it wasn't so much Manny wanting to play for the Yankees. It was Manny trying to hold out to see what team was going to offer the most money and he was hoping the Yankees were going to say hey wait a minute we really like you we're going to overpay over 300 million dollars because we want Manny as a Yankee right and, and and it didn't happen and then it was spring training already started he's like all right where are we at and he looked at his offers in San Diego's at 10 300 so he took that deal so St- Stevie D the interesting thing <laughs> were now I guess it, it holds no weight now were the comments from Adam Wainwright right yeah. he, he just Lately, came out and said, "You know what? If this doesn't happen, we're going on strike midseason." Yeah, it was an interesting comments from Adam Wainwright about free agents not getting signed. I mean, when you think about it, you have two of your premier hitters in the game in, in Harper and Machado. At the time, Machado wasn't signed yet, not signed. And you got Craig Kimball, the premier closer right now in the game, unsigned. Um, last year, last year he played for Boston, right? So you still had a lot of key free agent players out there still on sign. And so I think frustration uh, that people aren't getting signed. And what's funny about Adam Rainwright saying this is that Adam Rainwright's annual salary is $19 million. And I bet you the Cardinals came out and said, but Adam, you didn't pitch for us last year and we gave you $19 million. So what, what are you complaining about? Right. So, but his comments, I understand the frustration that players aren't getting it, but, Adam and, and the agents in baseball, there is a paradigm shift that now baseball is going through. Okay. And, and if you give me a few minutes, I'll, I'll explain my, my thoughts on this is that players today typically come up. Look, the Manny Machados are the rarity, right? At 19 years old, 18 years old, coming up to the majors. Typically you get drafted out of college. You spend a couple of years in the minors. And by the time you're 23, 24, you're coming up to the majors. 
okay? Your first six years are under team control. So that brings you to the age, age year 29 to age 30, okay? Now you're eligible for free agency. Now these players are coming out like Bryce Hopper at 29 years old, or 26 because he came in really young. But the typical player is 29, 30. They want, they want a 10-year deal. Well, teams today are really smarting up. They're like, we're not doing a 10-year deal because it really doesn't make sense to do a 10-year deal. And finally, teams like the Yankees have woken up and saying it doesn't work. And if the teams like the Yankees say it doesn't work, that have endless money, you think the other teams would wise up and realize it's not worth it. So teams are not want to pay guys at 29 to the 39 to 40 age year, $30 million a year. Because by the time you're 36, you're really, really starting to head down at the bottom part of your career. So right now, the paradigm shift, the agent's got to look at it and say, okay, all right, this is the shift that's going down. We need to, I need to get, concentrate on my, my, my uh, free agents here, more to four to five-year deals. Add up more annual money per year. So instead of a, a 10-year, $300 million deal, why don't you try and do five years at 175? So you're going to get more more money annually per year just on a lesser contract. And then when you're done, you try and get one more contract because the 10-year, it's just, it, unless you're Manny Machado, you're really not getting that 10-year deal and, and that blanket's just not there. So they need to be smarter they need to get smarter, do smaller deals. The other half, too, is under the six-year control, you saw with uh, NOLA, with the Phillies, do a four-year, uh, was it 54 million, a four-year 45 or a four-year $54 million contract with the Phillies. Last week, Severino, the Yankees, got a four-year $40 million deal with a team option that can bring it to five years and 52. So when you're under team control, sign a long-term contract there that gives you your money up front. So for argument's sake, let's say you're doing salary arbitration with the team and I'm going to use Luis Severino. So the Yankees offered Severino, um, I believe it was six, six or $8 million. He wanted $10 million. So here they are. They're about to go to court. And battle it out. Is Severino going to win the, the battle at $10 million, or the Yankees going to win in their case to get $8 million? So what they decided to do was, you know what? Let's get rid of this. Let's sign him to a long-term deal. So Severino is getting his $2 million that he wanted this year. But when you look at the next three years, when he starts going through arbitration, he probably will make at some point more than $10 million over the next three seasons after, after this year. So the Yankees locked him up long-term, four years, $40 million. Severino's happy because he's got his $40 million guaranteed right now. He's got a, a pay increase, and everybody's happy. In four years, five, in five years, he can then become a free agent and hope to cash in one more time for maybe eighty million to $100 million. So I think the players today need to look at, during their team-owned years, look at trying to figure out after year three, do a long-term deal. I thought it was a great move by Trout when he did it a few years ago with the Angels. Uh, I think it was five years, $150 million he got uh, back when he was on the team control. Smart move by Mike Trout securing that money because now when he comes a free agent, he can get that another big-time deal. So I, I think that's where it's headed, and the agents have to advise their clients, hey, we need to take a different approach. You, you know, in, in – 
well put, and it's hard to disagree with anything that you've said, even even as far as your outlook at what the players should do. With Stevie D, you know, you know, like I know that these guys, and, and I think I said this on the on our last show, these guys are sitting at home with their family, with their friends, and all the hangers on saying, "Oh, you could get what A Rod got." Yeah. And now they're saying you could get what Manny Machado got. Absolutely. And, and so these guys are not looking at, you know, where the trend is going. And they're going to be sitting on that other side of the fence saying, I want that 10 year. I want that 12 year. I want that 300 million. I want that 400 million. Yeah. Well, the, then the agents got to do their job and say, stop listening to that noise because they don't know what they're talking about. I'm telling you, this is where it's going. So you can hold out for that long-term contract and be disappointed that we can't get it. And yes, I hear you saying that's my job to go get it. But the reality is the teams are getting smarter because the other half of this mix is that when you get to a certain age, you're very, very replaceable. And that's what we're seeing today. When you're 36, 37, 38, you're not getting a two-year contract to come back and play. How many, I mean, you think about it 10 years ago, you saw players easily getting two-year contracts at 38 years old. Easily getting it. Carlos Beltran a couple of years ago was getting it at, at his age. You're not getting it anymore because they'd rather cut ties with an older player and look at this kid coming up at the minors who's the size of, of a linebacker at 6'3", 6'4", 240 pounds of solid muscle can hit the snot out of the baseball or can throw it 98 miles an hour. And they're saying, because these kids are getting trained. I mean, I, we talked about this off air. My son plays for a baseball academy. He's getting amazing training, amazing training out here on different skills, how to be a ball player from the time you warm up to all the drills, all these different skill positions and all the training that they do is incredible. The amount of indoor training they get. And he's, he's here in Kansas city. And he's not even considered an upper echelon ball player. Think about where these kids are going to these factories. <laughs> these kids are going to factories where they're, they're producing these monster kids, right? They're eating well. They're getting a lot of crazy instruction. And these kids today are getting coming out of college so much more advanced than players back in the 80s sure. and 90s. So much more advanced. So why would I pay a broken down older player? No, no disrespect but you're getting to the end of your career when I can give a young kid making no money an opportunity to show me what he's got. And probably a lot, eight out of 10, they're not disappointing. You're, you're sounding like the NFL. Right. But, but that's the shift that, that it's going to, because these kids today growing up, it, it's incredible the instruction that they're getting and how big these players are getting. Uh, it, it's 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 incredible to see it. I, I see it. my son's 14 and he's got a there's a player on his team. He's just turning 14 years old. His exit velo is 91 miles an hour. He's 14 years old. 91 miles an hour at 14. What, what is he going to be like when he hits 17? It's crazy. Well, it's, you have to explain to everybody what exit velo is. So exit velo is when you for how they test it here, it's they put the ball on a tee and uh, behind a behind a, an L screen, you stand with a radar gun. And it's the power, the speed 
from which the once the ball makes contact with the ball and the ball goes flying past the radar gun, that's exit velo. So today, and when you watch a baseball game, everything is uh, what's it stat stat track, right? Right. And they talk about when a guy hits a home run, and they say exit velo, the exit speed um, from the from leaving the bat is 105. Like Aaron Judge, he can hit 119. Stanton hits 119. Uh, guys hit a home run. Uh, exit velo is 106 at a trajectory of whatever. So that's exit velo. This kid is hitting 91 on a ball that's not even moving towards him, right? Because when you think about it, pitch comes in at 90 miles an hour. You swing the bat and you hit it out. You're hitting it at 105. That's pretty darn impressive. This young man is hitting it off of a tee at 91 miles an hour at 14 years old, right? And I'm sure there's other kids that are hitting it harder than him at 14 years old. I saw it from my own eyes. I, I, I saw the radar gun. I, I was like, are you kidding me? It's unbelievable. So it's, it's those, kids are, those kids are just getting so strong, Vince. It's, it's absolutely incredible. And that's why everybody's looking to the miners to find that next stud. And let me tell you something. We're, in this day right now, do you ever remember seeing so many young ballplayers that are just unbelievable? Unbelievable. When we do rookie of the year voting, you're like, holy cow, which one do I pick? Because these numbers are just absolutely ridiculous. Back in the day, we used to say, oh, he hit 260 with, with 11 home runs and 45 RBIs. He's rookie of the year. These guys have 11 home runs and 45 RBIs in the first two and a half months, three months, they come up. But it's right? relative. It's sure. relative because when we were looking at these guys in the, in the 70s and 80s and we were saying how good he was and you were looking at the back of that baseball card or you were like, he's a rookie, he's going to be able to do this. That was for that time in in era of baseball we it's it's more right so i wouldn't say that you know that our that what we were looking at was incorrect right it, it's just what we're seeing today is going to be totally different 10 years from now right we're going to be looking at something and saying you know the stats that you see like a ronald acuna jr putting up we're going to say really and he was a, he was the uh rookie of the year well I don't know if we'll. F I, I don't know if I totally agree with that because when you look at the numbers that these kids are putting up, unless baseball really changes the mound structure, uh, where you lower the mound instead of raising the mound, and you bring the fences in and you get rid of the sh defensive shifts, batting averages are not going up, right? You don't see many people hitting more for average. We don't see the guys hitting three forty, three thirty five consistently. You really don't see a lot of that anymore in the game. You're seeing just a lot more home runs. You're seeing RBIs, but I, you really don't see too many 300 plus hitters necessarily. So I don't know if that will really change in 10 years where the batting averages really go up. Now players are hitting more home runs, more power to them. Um, but I just think this era with rookies coming up to me, it's like nothing I've ever seen before. Uh, I, I understand your comparison from, from the eighties, but even in the eighties, you really didn't see so many players coming up as rookies with the same kind of numbers. I mean, what Akuna did for the Braves was ridiculous. Aaron judge hits 52 bombs. You, and can't look at the, you can't look at the numbers. I guess is what I'm saying. You can't look at the numbers to compare the errors because the numbers that we saw back then we never imagined that we would see the numbers that we see today, right? So we, right, we and that's what's so incredible numbers. about it. But I but, mean, think about when McGuire 
in, in what was it, 87, when McGuire and Canseco were out there in Oakland. Now, granted, they, they were enhanced a little bit out there, but you saw those numbers, we were like, we're seeing stuff we've never seen before. Oh, my well, goodness. Yeah, sure. Mark McGuire hit 49 home runs as a rookie, and everybody said, oh, we'll probably never see that. And then Aaron Judge hits 52, right? So that, yes, that one rare season where somebody does something spectacular like Aaron Judge, you may not see that for the next 20 years. And somebody's going to come along and hit 55 or, or something like that, possibly, right? But what I'm saying is such a young group of kids that are coming up year after year that are putting up really tremendous years. It's not like two guys that are going neck and neck for a rookie of the year. I mean, the American League, you have probably four or five guys that you really could have said, wow, they were rookie of the year, where you look at their numbers and you say, there's no way they're a rookie, right? What I'm saying is in the 80s, you knew the kid was still a rookie putting up those numbers. They just were saying, well, th that was a good year. When you look, again, minus Mark McGuire because he had a phenomenal rookie year. But if you look at these kids that are, you have five, six kids that are coming up per year and you're saying, holy cow, who do you give the rookie of the year awards? Any, meeny, miny, mo, because there's so much good young talent coming up that they don't play like rookies. They're well, playing it, like it, seasoned it, veterans. I'm not, I, I certainly am not going to dispute that. I, I do think, and I think you're spot on, that what baseball has found for itself in the 2000s and, and now current is that there's a deeper pool of talent that they're pulling from, from what they were pulling from in the 80s and the 90s. Um, and I think that we have also seen the shift, just like you were talking about the factories and the academies that are out there. Back in the 80s and 90s, talent was distributed amongst the little leagues in the community. You, you didn't have, you know, the IMGs or you didn't have the baseball academies for these kids to go to and to train and to eat, sleep and drink nothing but baseball, right? Which makes them so much better. You didn't have all of what you talked about and you're absolutely right. So that's why we are seeing more, but I, I think it's, I think with anything, it's relative to the era, right? Because it's not going to stop with what we have here. It's only going to get bigger and there's going to be more and there's going to be more enhancements and more, uh, development so that in 2030, when you look at the kids coming out then, you're like, what in the world happened? This kid is even faster and even stronger. And, sure. and so I, I just think for each area, it's relative, I guess is where I'm going okay. with that. But Stevie D, it is that time again. It is time for Fantastic Finishes, which is brought to you by Wanna Follow. Wanna Follow, the only social media consolidator on the planet. Imagine being able to follow anyone on one platform. Their patent-pending technology keeps you updated on all of your favorites by bringing all of their social media updates to you. WannaFollow.com also provides an efficient opportunity for you to follow and be followed. And Stevie D, when we look at our fantastic finishes for today, I have a little bit of a bone to pick, if you will. I'm not going to go on a rant. I'm not going to do that, but you know, I am, I am just about fed up with the college ranking system for football and for basketball. And what really bugs me is that when they do the rankings, there's two things. They start out with a preseason ranking. And so if you're not in that top 10 
in that preseason ranking. You have a whole lot of work to do to try to make it to that top 10 by the end of the season. And if you have just a, a minor slip up during your ascent, you're done. Unless you are a big time name, like a in football, like a Florida State, like an Alabama, like an Auburn, like an Ohio State, or in basketball, if you are like a Kentucky or Duke or North Carolina, if if you have a mistake, a slip up game, you can recover from that. What really kind of just struck me wrong recently, and you know I'm a big University of Buffalo fan. And UB is having a just a phenomenal season. They're twenty-two and three for the year. Uh, definitely, you have almost all but secured themselves a spot in the NCAA tournament. But University of Buffalo, in, in one poll, was ranked twenty-fifth last week. And UB won both of their games. Now, granted, they play in the MAC, but they won both of their games. So that they gave that gave them that record of 22 and three. There are teams, first of all, that are ahead of UB that have seven losses, six losses, eight losses. And these teams even lost sometimes one or even both games last week. And they dropped in the standings, but they only dropped one or two places in the standings. Whereas a UB who was ranked 18th lost, and all of a sudden they dropped seven spots to 25. Wow. They win two games, and they don't even move up in the polls. They don't move up in the rankings. There is something just completely wrong with the ranking system where it favors the big teams, it favors the big conferences, and it leaves those guys, those schools, that have ambitions of being right, to be able to see their name in lights, always on the outside looking in. It, it just really bugs me the way that it, the ranking system is done in college sports. You know, uh, well said. Those are the things that really upset me about the college game. I mean, people, it, it's just, it's not fair. And it's not fair that just because you have a name or have name recognition that they think you deserve the right to be there and when you haven't earned it. And th those are the things that really bother me about college basketball and, and college football, to be honest with you. Right. It's that whole Notre Dame effect in football. Absolutely. Uh, I, I just don't, I don't like it. And it's not, it's not fair because like UB is not a powerhouse name when it comes to college football or college basketball. I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but when you look at the history of college basketball, you wouldn't really find UB in there. No, right, but right. they're making this run, right? They're making a run in both sports. They're making a run, and not to get their fair due when they're making this run, they're robbing college. Um, they're robbing the college fan to see how UB's playing, and it's hurting their chances to recruit because they don't get their fair justice. So maybe UB can hang around for more years if they got their notoriety when they're playing well and, and they get their fair due within the ranking system and, and this and that. Cause when you think of Gonzaga years ago, nobody knew what Gonzaga was. They thought it was a disease. Probably Gonzaga. Oh, do I got a skin ailment? Right now all of a sudden they got some rain recognition 
and now you see them in in, in the NCAA tournament all the time, and, and they can recruit, and they're, you know, they're one of the better basketball teams in the country year after year now. So I, I feel bad for UB that, that this is going on, and it, it's unfair to the kids, unfair to the coaching staff, um, that they're, they're going through that. And, I'm, and I couldn't agree more with the points you were making. And then we have a bit of sad news. Oh, we do. Uh, we, we, it seems like it happens in just succession, in rapid succession. Uh, but but we lost a great uh, Don Newcomb, uh, passed away the other day, uh, known as the Nuke. Uh, Brooklyn Dodger played with Jackie Robinson, played with Roy Campanella, uh, was signed from the Negro Leagues by Branch Rickey. Um, it just – incredible and you know I was looking back at you know as I was reading about his passing I was looking back you know just the things that he did especially when he first joined yeah. the Dodgers is just incredible incredible he, he, he incredible numbers incredible. Yep. Uh, and think about how hard it was to pitch for him right sure. because that's when you know Jackie just came into the league and, and, they, and the color barrier just got broken in Major League Baseball it's it was not an easy time to play, and 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 he no. just lit it up, lit it up uh, in his first three seasons, and and really, uh, and and Don, we we obviously appreciate your your service to the military, and you, I think you got drafted, but either way, you you uh, fought in the Korean War. Um, and lost two years of your playing career. And again, baseball got robbed of watching you for two more years play. And it took him a year to kind of get back into his groove. And then 55 and then the magical year of 56. I mean, he went 27 and seven in, in 1956. He was the Cy Young award winner and the MVP of the league. Um, he was just, just a phenomenal year. Uh, and so it all came back. So just a phenomenal person. A uh, phenomenal career, um, and uh, we lost a great one. Um, rest in peace at 92, Don Newcomb. Yeah, well said, Stevie D. So, uh, unfortunately, on a sad note, that's going to wrap it up for us. Uh, again, you can always follow us and, and see any updates that we have on our website, officialwordsports.com. Uh, you can follow us uh, on Facebook and on Twitter. Uh, once again, I want to say thanks to Sean Cunningham for coming on and talking a little bit about NFL and stats and the era of the quarterbacks. And and so that's going to wrap it up. And so, Stevie D, uh, it was a pleasure. It was a good show. Great show. Great show. Really enjoyed it. And uh, I look forward to uh, hopefully getting some feedback on this episode and, and what folks really want to see out of the uh, – Hall of Fame rankings and quarterback rankings. We'd love your feedback on that topic. So feel free to uh, reach out and let us know. I'm Vince. I'm Steve. We'll talk to you soon.